Hey everyone, it's Jacqueline Melanick. Welcome to Chain Reaction, a show that unpacks and dives deep into the latest trends, drama, and news with some of the biggest names in crypto, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. Today's guest is Chris Dixon, general partner at the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz and founder of its crypto arm. He is also the author of the newly released book, Read, Write, Own, which we are recording on January 30th, and it's the same day his book is released to the public. So we're super excited to have Chris on to talk about it in basically Chain Reaction's first ever book review-like talk. With that said, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jackie. I appreciate it. Yeah. And before we get started, we always like to ask our guests this. You've met a lot of people, invested in a lot of companies. And if you could share, who is one person in crypto that you've spoken to in the past 12 months that has inspired you and what did you learn from them? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I'm lucky enough in my job to, mm -hmm. you know, basically my job is to meet with interesting people and to meet with entrepreneurs and to learn from them. And, and you know, a lot of my book is, is, is like the distillation of things I've learned from them. So I'm not trying to dodge your question, but it, but it is <laughs> sort of like first. my, it's okay. it is, yeah. it's sort of my, like the, frankly, the great thing about my job is that you mm -hmm. just get to meet with a lot of high energy, really intelligent, creative people. I don't know, like we live in a, a we can talk about it more as we can maybe get into the book, but like, I feel like we live in this era of sort of big tech mm -hmm. and, you know, what got me inspired about the internet was sort of people starting out with fresh ideas. And I, I always, that's, how, that's what brings me energy is like meeting those folks and hearing their new ideas. So mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, it's hard to single out one person. That's fair. And honestly, <laughs> as someone who interviews a lot of people in this space, I feel the same way. I'm energized by a lot of founders, ideas, things like that. And some calls I'm like, all right, I could take a break after this. But other ones I'm like, I want to get working, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And on the topic of read, write, own, we will get into the big tech part, but maybe this will answer that question. Why did you even want to write this book? What inclined you to do this? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Crypto and blockchains are in the news a lot, but a lot of it is around speculation and prices. And I feel that there's another side to the story. Mm -hmm. And it's the side of the story that I, I live in, that the entrepreneurs we work with live in, which is what I would call the productive side of blockchains, right? How do you use blockchains to create new internet services that bring us back the counter the consolidation of the internet? And in my mind, bring us back to the ideal ideals of the original Internet, sort of the origins of the Internet as an open and democratic system. Right. So mm -hmm. so I felt there was this other side of the story. And I felt very strongly that it was an important story to tell and hadn't been. People talk about it, of course. And, you know, there's a lot of great books out there on different topics around blockchains, you know, the work you do and people in media do. And we try to do with our posts mm -hmm. and blogging and stuff. But I think there's something special about a book that, you know, that just can reach a different audience. So, for example, like I go to D.C. a lot now because there's a lot of policy discussions or just speak to f people who aren't in the industry. And I literally would hear all the time, you know, what book should I read? You know, it's like Paul Graham always says, or Y Combinator, I think, says, build a product that you want, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, like writing this book in some way was like, I wanted this like book to book. exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I almost, I mean, it's like if someone else wanted to write it, like it was a lot of work, you know, mm -hmm. that'd be great. 
But I just felt like maybe I was in a, you know, just having been in the internet for my whole career, having been in the space for a long time, I felt like I could bring a kind of a, a maybe, I don't know if a unique, but at least a you know, fresh perspective. So I felt like it was something we need and I could potentially do it. And so I took on, I, you know, I, I was naive and thought, I'll probably whip it out in like six months, you know, like it'll be a fast <laughs> process. And uh, it, you know, much longer than that, just lots of details, lots of, you know, just a lot of work. But in the end, yeah. I think very rewarding. And as you mentioned, it's coming out today. And so I'm really excited now after all this buildup to see, you know, what people, I, I've had some people read it, I sent some advanced copies out, but really the world hasn't read it yet. And so I'm really excited to see the reaction. And I'm hoping it starts a dialogue, you know, instead of there's a lot of like emotion around these topics and political mm-hmm. debates. And I, I'm hoping to kind of elevate the debate, the discussion a little bit. And I'm hoping people will respond. I'm sure there's things I got wrong. Mm-hmm. But what I'm hoping is it kind of frames the, the topic and I think more in terms of the history and all the potential and that is more around the productive aspects than the kind of trading aspects. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of noise out there that is focused on meme coins. And to be fair, there's a lot of trading volume happening there. But is that really what will bring society further? I'm not sure. I'm not the one to say. Yeah. But your book also has this emphasis on like the computer technical side of crypto versus like the casino world of coins, degens, gambling, etc. You know what I'm talking about. How do you think the industry or just people within the space in general can kind of fix that image to an outsider's perspective and like truly show the value of blockchain technology opposed to just people viewing this as like a big pump and dump scheme? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that the first and foremost, it's incumbent on people like me, like investors, but also entrepreneurs that we work with to build great products. And you you think about you know, AI as an example. So AI has been around for 80 years. I actually, 15 years ago, started an AI company. And actually, at the time, it wasn't like crypto, bad word, but AI was had kind of a bad word to it because it had been promised for so many years that they were going to, Alan Turing wrote about AI in 1950 and said that, you know, that, that he thought that there would be intelligent human-like machines. And I think it was, you know, I don't know, a relatively near future. And so there'd been all these promises and it hadn't delivered. But then, of course, it did deliver, right? I mean, or, mm-hmm. I think like ChatGPT and all the things it's done. So for me, fundamentally, it's about delivering. Um, we need to, del- we, the community that believes in productive uses of blockchains, need to deliver great products, right? So now, secondly, I do think that a lot of the kind of casino behavior, and I, and I have a big section in the book about this, which, by the way, I think, you know, I think there's certain people in the crypto community who won't like that part of the book. Like, I decided to write that anyways. I, I, you know, I'm not sure it's going to win me a popularity contest with some people, but I felt like it was important to call that out because... I do think we need to also think about things we do to dampen that kind of behavior. And that, that ranges from, you know, like a lot of these, I think, are policy questions. This is why we've gotten more involved with policy. Like I, I was involved with Coinbase for years, and it was always frustrating at Coinbase that you had these companies like FTX and Binance that were offshore that were, you know, Coinbase is heavily regulated, BSA, KYC, you know, all these, you know, huge focus on compliance and security, public company audited, and they had competitors that that didn't do that and took market share. And I think those competitors really encouraged a lot of the, you know, casino behavior. And so I do think some of this is the role of policymakers to, you know, quickly act when when mm-hmm. people when there are bad actors in the space who encourage this kind of thing. But I, I, yeah, I'd say fundamentally, though, it's about it's about building great products. I think all tech is in the end. People talk about, you know, maybe different branding, different marketing. I, I, my experience in tech is 
products or everything. You know, people really finally got AI when they saw ChatGPT. People really finally got smartphones when they saw the iPhone. And that fundamentally, we just need to create great products. What do you think people really get crypto with? What will be that product that would bring that in? Well, that's what we're, you know, that's what we're, as investors, we're, we're of course, trying to uh, you set predict that, that one and up. invest yeah. in. <laughs> yeah. So we have a wide range of investments. And so the short answer is, I, you know, I have a bunch of, you know, areas that I think are promising. I have found that, you know, like, I, I, for example, I was an early investor in a lot of mobile apps when iPhone came out in 2007. And I, I was an investor 2007, 8, 9. And there were a lot of hypotheses, like maybe, you know, now that you have this supercomputer in your pocket and it has GPS and a camera, you know, maybe the killer app will be this or that. And right. we had all these debates. And in the end, you know, it, it turned out, you know, ephemeral messaging. I think that probably surprised some people calling a cab like Uber, mm-hmm. you know, messaging. I mean, some of the things were maybe a little bit more predictable, but some of them kind of, you know, I think surprised people. So my experience with this has been, and I think blockchains will be similar in that, it's hard to exactly predict, but you can sort of have a sense of it and make a bunch of investments. And so, so our investments span from you know, we have a bunch around kind of what we call Web3 gaming that basically use NFTs and other types of blockchain based media to create new income streams for creative people. We have a number of things around kind of social networking, a number of investments around finance and DeFi and payments. So, you know, kind of have a bunch of hypotheses. And then we, you know, we meet with great founders who who we invest in and hope that they, they build those kinds of products. So I think there's a lot of promising signs, but it's hard to say exactly where that kind of true breakout will happen. I'm sure we'll find out one of these days, weeks or Months or years, hopefully. I hope so. <laughs> Sooner rather than I, later. I, I, believe, I believe so. That's why I'm doing it. But right. And I think it will be in, you know, I, I think and hope it will be in the relatively near future. But, mm-hmm. but um, you know, obviously that remains to be seen. Yeah. I think, you know, you had the chapter about the, like, casino coins we kind of talked about and then, like, products. Do you think there's, like, a world where they both can coexist and it's, like, fine that we have this more degenerate side of crypto and then we have, like, a more sophisticated technical side of crypto? Or should we just get rid of that side? So I think the key breakthrough of blockchains is they enable digital ownership, right? And so Mm -hmm. digital, just to maybe define that, like as an example, when you use a social network today like Twitter or Facebook, you don't own your name and you don't own own your audience. And because, and so if, if those social networks change the rules or change the algorithm, or decide to, you know, take the all the revenue or do whatever they want to do. If you leave the social network, you lose your name, you lose your audience, you lose everything you built. And so with digital ownership, the idea is that the user has control. The user, in the case of social networks, would own their name. In the case of a game, would own the assets they they buy right. and build. So that's what ownership is. Now, I would sort of liken it to home ownership in the in the physical world. So in home ownership, I think we agree as a society is valuable. It, Most it's, times, it's, yes. Yeah, I mean, okay, it's just. Yes, it, 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 it can go wrong for sure, <laughs> but but uh, but generally, like I think people think it's mm-hmm. you know it's it's an important thing to allow people to have to at least hopefully buy a home. Okay, and and if you buy a home, you know that's important psychologically. It's there's a nice thing to knowing you can have your family in a home you own. It can be right. important for building wealth. It, it's important for aligning incentives. So you have an incentive to kind of invest in your home and improve it and improve your community, right? I mean, a lot of reason people get involved in their communities is because they own a home. Now, as a secondary a byproduct of that, we have people flipping houses 
and REITs and like a speculative market around home ownership. And I think that speculative market plays a role. Like the reason you can go to Zillow and get his estimate is because there's a liquid market with traders. So I'm not anti-speculation. I just want to be clear. And speculation yeah. is generally legal in most markets in the United States. But I think it's sort of a, a question of priorities. Like it's gotten to so much attention in around blockchains and crypto. And it, it's sort of putting the cart before the horse. Like the, the, the focus should be on digital ownership. Yes, there will be trading and there will be some speculation, but it's not the main purpose, right? And, mm -hmm. and I think that's where, where it's kind of the emphasis is off and what I am trying to sort of help nudge back on the right course with my book. That makes sense. The book also talks a lot about big tech versus crypto, Web 2 versus Web 3. We even got Web 1 in the beginning. And I think it's really done in a digestible and understandable way. And even for, you know, people who don't understand Web3, I can imagine, hopefully they'll be able to pick up the book and understand it. I'm sure that's what you want too. But why focus on the comparison between big tech and crypto? Well, yeah. So a lot of times I'll hear, especially around these kind of policy discussions around crypto, mm. like what's the societal benefit, right? I mean, it's a, it's a, and it's a, it's a very reasonable question, right? Like, you know, what's the societal benefit of AI? Like presumably AI will make, will help people become you know, give them superpowers. It'll make them more creative and let them work faster. And there may be bad things with AI, like maybe you can, you know, people are worried you can create a bioweapon or something. And so then what we do right. as a policy, like from a policy point of view, right, is we try to design policies that allow for the good and disallow the bad. A lot of the dialogue today around blockchains and crypto, a lot of the skeptics will say there's no use cases, right? There's no value. Like, what is the point? Where's the societal value? So I wanted to take that issue head on in my book. And I wanted to say the reason that, that I'm motivated to work in this space, and I think the reason a lot of entrepreneurs I'm motivated to work in this space, is that we believe in having a dynamic, open, democratically controlled internet. And people, that's a, that's a long time, you know, that was, the internet was founded on those beliefs. And mm -hmm. a lot of people, I think, share those beliefs. But, but the challenge is that people have said that in crypto and blockchains, but no one's, I thought, had really explained it. It's sort of one, it's one thing to say that, but like, a natural question a skeptic would ask is like, see this token like Bitcoin, and mm -hmm. you say it's going to, th this technology will potentially reduce the power of these big tech incumbents, but how do you get from A to B, right? And so a lot of what I try, and I'm glad to hear you you said it was digestible or readable, because I, <laughs> yes. I worked very, very hard on that. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I worked sure very, very hard on that. I'm sure general audience as well, yeah. yeah. I, I hope so. I hope so, because I, I really tried hard. This was not a book I wrote you know, to show what I know or something. I really, really tried hard to make this a book for the reader mm -hmm. and to make this a book that was understandable. And I didn't, I really avoided jargon and other things and really tried to walk through the details. I just really want it to be readable and, and to, you know, hopefully people will, I want it to be enjoyable. Mm -hmm. I want people to like the book. And, and I felt like, look, I want to go and really prove to people how you make this connection between these things you hear about, mm -hmm. like Ethereum and Bitcoin and other things, and an internet that's more open, right? So I, that was the challenge I put to myself, you know, without hyperbole, without skipping steps, without relying on jargon, like walk through the details and show how that works mm -hmm. and, and show to people why if you're a skeptic or maybe maybe a lot of people are just neutral. I think most people are probably neutral is my guess. Like and I think those people like I wanted to if, if they're interested in the topic, I wanted to give them a book where mm -hmm. I could explain it like this. This does have societal value and that they're the things that, that people are building are not just you know, these sort of degen trading things, they're trying to build things that, that make mm -hmm. the internet better. Yeah. 
Going off that point, your book also had a paragraph or section that was about what problems do blockchain solve? And some people could argue like, why do we need this? You know, and you had a comparison when you were like, why have steel if we could use wood to make a home or make like railroad tracks and things like that? And it's so true, like looking back, if we never really went into the steel industry, we wouldn't have the skyscrapers that we have in New York City and, you know, every city today. I'm just based in New York. That's why I said that. But what do you think ultimately blockchains can bring us? Yeah. And so it's a great question. This is one of the challenges, honestly, in writing the book is blockchains are fundamentally the tools for builders. Like if we're successful in this movement, it's not like an average Internet user is going to be sort of, you know, clicking on a blockchain or something like it's it's a behind the scenes technology and that made it challenging to write in a sense because i have to explain yeah. sort of infrastructure software and <laughs> networks to yes. general audience um, but but i think that like the analogy with steel is it like is it it's a building material right it's a it's a thing that builders use and it's a material and specifically it's a material for building internet services and mm-hmm. and and one of the core th- theses of the book is that the way you build the sort of the architecture, the design of these services ends up having these very profound downstream consequences around how the control and money and all the other important things about the internet service work, right? That's one of my kind of core arguments. And so, and specifically, I, that, that's why I could do a little bit of the history of the internet, because it, the internet began with what I call protocol networks. Sometimes people call them protocols. The World Wide Web is a protocol, HTTP, that's built on top of the internet. Email is a protocol built on top of the internet. And they were architected in such a way that they were democratically controlled, where if you, you know, people know this today, I think when they have, they have a newsletter, for example, if you have an email newsletter, you have a direct relationship with the audience, right? If you send them yeah. something and they buy something, maybe you pay a payment processor or someone else, but you're not paying Facebook some huge toll or Apple some huge toll, right? You, you know, and if you don't, and by the way, the reason you're paying a lower toll is you can switch, Right. So mm-hmm. if you're on Substack and they charge you too much, you can switch to MailChimp. Right. Because mm-hmm. you control that. You control your relationship with your audience. And that was a key feature of the early Internet. Same thing with websites. You control your web. You know, if you have a web, you techcrunch.com. Techcrunch <laughs> owns that domain, website. Yes. Yeah, the domain. Yes. You mm-hmm. own that website. You can build a direct relationship with your audience. You can decide to put ads. You can decide to charge. You're in control. Mm-hmm. And then over time, we had the rise of what I call corporate networks, which were things like Facebook and Twitter and just all the mini TikTok and many of the modern services that people use today, PayPal, I don't know, just go right. different categories, eBay. And those services are wonderful in many ways, very powerful. They have great user experiences. You know, many of the many services like Google and Facebook brought free internet services to billions of people. But they came, my argument is they came at a trade. It was sort of this Faustian bargain where they they gave us all this wonderful stuff, but in exchange, mm-hmm. we handed them lots and lots of power. Because when you're using one of these systems like Facebook, let's say, or TikTok, you can't switch the way you switch with email. They have full, you're handing them full control. Yeah. You know, people may be familiar with those 60 page terms of service and, and privacy policies, <laughs> legal agreements that pop yes. up. Like, no, I don't think anyone, I assume none of your listeners have read them or negotiated them. Maybe a few lawyers have. Yeah. Um, right. But most people haven't. And, and, you know, so I think just the fact that you get these legal agreements and you're basically giving all your data away and everything else is just, to me, an example of how much control they have. So that's sort of, you know, my core argument is how these things are designed. And, and so that's why blockchains matter is blockchains are a new building material that lets you build Internet services 
in my core argument, is that that have the kind of the all of the wonderful advantages of these corporate networks like Facebook and Twitter, and you can build modern interfaces and you can do all sorts of other interesting stuff, but you don't have to, to sacrifice the control and give it over to a small group of people. You can maintain community control. And so I argue it's kind of the best of both worlds, a blockchain, what I call blockchain networks, um, mm-hmm. of, of kind of the two earlier network designs, and therefore can allow entrepreneurs to build new internet services that, that return the internet in many ways to its original ideals is an open and democratic network. Wow, that was a lot, but we love it. And I think on that note, what I was thinking of while you were talking were a few things. One, it's like the saying that's like, if it's free, then you're the product. And then I also thought of take rates. I know you had a whole section on that and how significant that is. And we could talk about that too. And also just how, what we go back to with the digital ownership, it's like, in Web3, you want everyone to own their own things and like be in control. But in Web2, they want you to stay on Facebook. They want you to stay on Twitter. They want you to be siloed into their network so you don't just branch off and go elsewhere. I think on the topic of take rates, just briefly, I'm curious your thoughts on how do you think this could be shared with the general public so they could truly understand the opportunity here? Because when you think about Apple's app store take rate, it's about 30% for in-app purchases. Facebook has its own model for whatever ads or the way they interact with people who yeah, basically advertise on their site. But with blockchains or projects building in the e- ecosystem, by comparison, it's like, what, 2% or less typically, even if that So how do we kind of like get that out there opposed to going over people's heads? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, thank you for that question, because the take rates, I think, are a very important topic. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, I have a chapter on it. I think most people probably don't even know what the word, if you're not in the internet business, you don't know what, (laughs) I'm just saying most- you can learn it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, most (laughs) listeners might not know what it is, means. So what it means is, you know, for an internet service, a take Mm -hmm. rate is the percent, like think of the money sort of flows through the service, and what percentage of that money is taken as a toll by the internet service service provider, right? And -hmm. so, for example, when you use your credit card, on average, about like between two to three percent goes- to the providers in between, and the other 97-something percent goes to the person you're buying something from. Um, the internet's, modern internet services are extreme outliers from the rest of the economy in that their take rates are extremely, extremely high. So, for example, Facebook and TikTok and Instagram, they make, the top social networks make about $150 billion a year in advertising revenue. They put ads over the content, you know, between the content, and they essentially share none of that with the people that actually create the content. You you don't go to TikTok to see TikTok's content. You go to see some creator's content, and yet they don't get any of that money. They have these de minimis creator funds. Yeah, small amounts. Yeah, yeah, there's some one percent of the revenue. I talk. I have some details for those who want in the book. But, but essentially, they keep all the money. And then Apple is relatively generous compared to the other internet companies in that if you buy something on the on the iOS App Store and same with Android, thirty percent of that money goes to Apple for anything you buy. Which is why there's this big lawsuit between Epic and Spotify and Apple and all these companies are very upset because it's very hard to mm-hmm. run a business. You know, if you ha- go to any business down the street and you say, "What if you had to pay thirty percent for your payments?" It's just very hard for most businesses to operate that way. So it's it's a huge, huge tax. And so essentially these companies have leveraged their positions of strength and their lock-in. You're locked into these ecosystems. If you're a creator who like built an audience on TikTok or on Instagram and you have, let's just say, 100,000 followers, you're not going to leave. Like it's very hard to leave because you have to start over, right? So, and, and these services know that. And so they mm-hmm. dictate the terms, right? And Apple, you're locked in. Like if you're a developer, you have to, you know, Spotify has to be on, the app, on, on Apple. So they leverage their power economically, but a lot of this is hidden from the public. So that, you know, like, 
like if you're just a regular user, you don't see any of this. And so I think this in some ways, this is why I appreciate the question. It's, I think it's incredibly important thing because it's about how all of this huge amount of money flows around. But yeah. it's in a lot of ways obfuscated from the users of these systems. They just sort of say, oh, I used this thing and it was free. And, <laughs> you know, but, but yeah, in fact, as yeah. you said, there's in some sense, they are the product. I mean, the right. influencer is the product. The creator is the product. Um, and then, look, in the extreme cases like Mr. Beast, they, they make good money. But there's a lot, a lot of people in the middle who just don't get paid properly. Like music's a good example where the, you know, there's uh, by Spotify's own numbers, there's 8 million. I mean, I said Spotify's fighting Apple, but meanwhile, Spotify Spotify's, itself is, yeah. is fighting musicians. And there's 8 million musicians on, <laughs> on Spotify. Ends, yeah. <laughs> it never ends. The 8 million musicians on Spotify. And of that, I think their own stat is 14,000 musicians make $50,000 a year or more and the rest don't. You just ask a musician if you have a friend a musician and they will almost all tell you they make nothing, on very, virtually nothing on streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just all set up to favor these intermediaries. And, and I think that and I think it's, uh, my argument partly is it's just sort of this, you know, it's like the dam will break at some point. People will realize that this mm-hmm. is not a good system for them and that we can create alternatives. And that specifically, as you mentioned, uh, blockchain networks, one of the key features of blockchain networks, and I walk through the whole kind of economic argument in the mm-hmm. book, is that they have dramatically lower take rates, like 1%, 2%, where like 98% go to the users and creators and entrepreneurs. And, and that, that just makes a huge difference, even though, again, this is sort of behind the scenes. Like if you're a regular user, you wouldn't see it, but it makes a huge economic difference. It's very, very important. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that completely. And I, I think another point I wanted to pull from your book, I tweeted this out also, but you wrote that when the internet was first going mainstream, it wasn't even listed as a top 10 greatest engineering achievements in the year 2000. And you wrote that the National Academy of Engineering placed internet at the 13th ranking and it was below radio and telephones at six, which is so funny because like who has a landline anymore? I still listen to the radio if I'm in a car. Air conditioning and refrigeration was 10th. I get it. <laughs> but still, I think the Internet's a little more impressive. And space exploration was 12th. And like not to knock any of these inventions. They're all big ones. But looking back, it seems so silly that the Internet wasn't ranked higher. And sure, this is just like one ranking, you know, there probably were others that maybe put the internet at a higher position. But I'm asking here, like, what phase of adoption do you think crypto is in right now? Like, because if that type of poll came out today, I don't even know if crypto would be in that type of ranking. You know what I mean? And it took a while for people to, quote unquote, get the internet and not view it as this thing for like techies or an alternative to faxing or something. So when will crypto kind of be in that phase where it'll be ranked or even appreciated to that level, you think? Yeah, it's a great, great question. So I don't think... I mean, sometimes people say like crypto is like the internet. I mean, I, my mind is like, you know, history rhymes, but doesn't repeat like the internet's special and crypto's different. But, mm-hmm. but that said, I think these, and part of the point I was making with the part you're describing about sort of the internet downturn, when I started my internet career for in earnest was like 2004. So it was during that right. downturn from like 2001 to six or so people were pretty pessimistic. And I gave some, another statistic I like is that I think it was McKinsey. No, it was Pew. I have it in the book. It's a, I think Pew did a study, and they asked people, "Would you want broadband?" And the majority said they wouldn't want broadband. This is like 2003. <laughs> right. I think is in the. I have it in the book. But the, the reason was, what did you use for the internet for at the time? You used it. You'd go to a website. You'd buy a travel ticket. You check email. Why do you need that to be faster? But mm-hmm. of course. What happened is as broadband grew, people invented video 
streaming, invented, you know, 3D games. And like, so it's sort of this, it's one thing I talk about in the book is just with these kinds of computing waves, there's a feedback cycle where you build, you right. get better infrastructure and then that in turn enables better applications, which, and the two feed back and forth on each other. And then you get this sort of faster growth. I, you know, it's like, I found it's very hard to predict exactly where you are in these computing cycles. Like, mm -hmm. like I said, I started an AI company in 2008, which I sold to eBay in 2011. And so clearly I was too early on that. So I'm, yeah, but at the know, time been, it seems like it was like probably the perfect time to sell it, right? Yeah, I thought so. And, you know, I find the timing of these things hard. I find it, I might personally believe it's sort of easier to predict what technology will be important and harder to predict exactly mm. how, when it happens. So I'm going to, uh, you know, hedge a little bit on that. But I do think, <laughs> but I, like, I do think there's some really important positive signs around blockchains right now. And specifically, so like to give you one example, until recently, it would basically on something like Ethereum cost, you know, $5 to do a typical act, you know, action. And so, you know, you, and, and what that meant was it really, really limits the range of applications you can build, right? If, if, if every time you click a like on a social network, you have to pay $5, nobody's going to use it, right? And so I think what that did is it forced Going back to your your first question about speculation, like one of the only applications you can really run at five dollars a transaction is stuff like trading, <laughs> trading right? Yeah. Like, yeah, and so and now you know with uh, you know without going into all the detail, there's these things called layer twos, and there's all these other kind of infrastructure improvements. Where I think we're now, and there's other blockchains like Solana, where you're now seeing like sub penny transaction costs, which mm -hmm. means then the services can subsidize them the way they do with Web two companies. And so that, as an example, is a very important improvement that we can kind of measure that's that that I think is you know we made a lot of progress there I look at just you know the entrepreneurs we work with and the products they're building and just sort of the, you just go use them and they're starting to feel like much more I'll just mm -hmm. give you an example I'm in New York Europe sounds like you're in New York too I'm in New York right now and we have a application an investment called Blackbird which is a restaurant I know Blackbird, Service. yeah. Yeah, you know Blackbird. Okay, there you go. <laughs> this is the founder of a, a very talented founder, Ben Leventhal, who started Resi, which is a you know, popular reservation service, and before that, Eater.com, which is a food blog, and, and has built an application that involves restaurants and NFTs and things. And, it's, and it feels like a Web2, like a fully modern, you know, and, and that's, there's a bunch of those, like Farcasters, a social network that feels, you mm -hmm. know, very modern. So we're starting to, I think, just really see a step function improvement in user experience. And so, so I, like, I don't know exactly when it will happen, but I feel like we're getting a lot closer. A couple years? Sooner? I, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I, I, like, I hope so. I, right. I think so, and I hope so. But, um, I, I, you know, I'm hoping, like, one reason I also wrote the book is I really want, you know, crypto has gone through cycles, and I, I really feel strongly that I want to see, you know, and I obviously believe it's going to come back, but I want to see it come back. And sort of in my mind, the important thing is it comes back in the right way. It comes back... And it's focused on applications and it's focused on, you know, new services. And that was part of my motivation was like I wanted to share that vision and hopefully maybe nudge that vision along because, like, I do think and I, I do feel like there's sort of this upswing happening. And, and, and particularly when I'm saying that in terms of innovation, you know, um, just quality of, you know, products and everything and, and infrastructure. But uh, yeah, I, I'm hoping it's a couple of years. But yeah, I hope the ball keeps rolling and maybe snowballs down a hill in a good way. I certainly hope so. And I, I think I believe it will happen. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break before we get into the rapid fire segment. And we are back. Now is time for our rapid fire segment where I will ask Chris some questions and hopefully he will give us quick, short responses. Are you ready, Chris? 
I'll try. I'm not known to be <laughs> concise, but okay, I'll try. That's all right. That's all right. So what's harder, writing a book or making a good investment decision? Wow. Very different, right? Writing a book is a grind. It's like, an, it's like just tons and tons of time, whereas mm-hmm. making a good investment decision, well, in some sense, it's a grind. You, you know, you meet with tons and tons of folks and learn a lot. But there's also a lot more luck involved and a lot more serendipity, I would say. You know, you happen to meet the right founder at the right time. Whereas a yeah. book is just like you got to sit down and you got to get up every morning. So it's, they're, both, they're both quite they're both challenging, <laughs> quite challenging. I guess that follows was my it, next was that, question. Was that rapid enough? I'm trying to, trying to wrap yeah, it up. Yeah, yeah. Well, this one, <laughs> one sentence, Chris. Okay, ready? okay one sentence. All What's right. the worst part about writing a book? Um, I, I would say... It's, you know, I, okay, I, I had a few times, uh, I'm going to make this a long sentence, know, a few times while writing okay. it, a few times while writing it where I thought I was making progress and then reread the book and was like, oh my God, I got to redo the whole like structure and everything else. So like, it's just mm. a lot to keep in your, in your brain. And for me, it ended up being kind of this two steps forward, one step back kind of thing, but yeah. you know, eventually got there been there as a writer. So I get that. And we're not pessimists on this podcast always. So what's the best part about writing the book? Oh, it was, well, I think, I mean, it's just launching today. So I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> the best part I hope will be getting the responses and feedback. And I hope, right. you know, I hope people give, and obviously there'll be some criticism and I hope there will also be people that found it useful. Um, so that's really exciting, just having something out in the world. I also found it a very personally edifying process. You know, I believed the things I wrote in the book, but until I wrote it, I had I felt like I hadn't really proven it in detail. Mm-hmm. So I just found that kind of rigor was helpful for myself. All right. What other book or books in the Web3 space do you admire? I think there's a lot of good histories. So I, was, I think it's called The Infinite Machine on, the, on Ethereum. Mm-hmm. You know, the, there's you know, good histories of like Coinbase and uh, like the Bitcoin standard and sort of there's a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff on Bitcoin. What else is I like Vitalik's his proof of stake. Yeah, there's not a lot of books. Like a lot of the material is, I think, really in podcasts and blog posts probably. Mm-hmm. Chain reaction. More than, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And chain reaction, of course. Changing to what you do for a living, VC, mm-hmm. partner at A16Z, what is a crypto startup that quote unquote got away in your investing career that you didn't make a deal on and you wish you did? Oh, oh, we've missed a lot of things. I mean, I, the na- <laughs> I mean, I mean, I could just go on and on throughout my that's career, a, not that's just an crypto. Answer, yeah. yeah, I mean, just throughout. <laughs> and honestly, everyone in the industry who's honest, whether mm-hmm. it's crypto or I mean, just generally. It's, it's actually, a hum, I think, a very common experience in venture capital and mm-hmm. just angel investing is you come in and you think I'm sort of have this magical spidey sense and mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, be able to predict things better than other people. And then you just kind of have this moment where you really whiff and you have some meeting and, and, and don't see it and dismiss something that you shouldn't dismiss. So I've had, and I've had plenty of those. And you saying specifically in crypto or in general or? I would say in crypto, um, but in general, if one came to mind first, you could go there. In crypto, I mean, like, 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 I mean, there's, there's been, one, I think one of our core values, I'll say, is fixing our mistakes. And so one, mm-hmm. so for example, when Solana, we first met Solana, we didn't invest in the initial round, like the seed or series A. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we saw all of the impressive things they'd done in technology and my partner Lee you know we talked about it and we said look let's let's not be you know prideful about this we, we made a mistake and let's go fix it and we did that and we managed you know we managed to invest and it's still a fairly early stage and, and that by the way that happens all the time I mean that that yeah 
I think we've got, you know, I, I like our portfolio, but and some of them we have early and some late. And when they're later, often it's, it's because we met, we didn't get it the first time, but we try to have discipline around fixing that. So dialing back to when you got in the crypto space, what was one of the first crypto projects that you got really excited about? Yeah, I mean, like everybody, the first, you know, because the first thing was Bitcoin. I got excited <laughs> yes. about Bitcoin. I mean, but, but yeah, with Bitcoin, Bitcoin. I, you know, yeah. I, had, I had a different take on Bitcoin, I guess, that didn't. Like, I was excited particularly about the programming language of Bitcoin when I got into Bitcoin. In my mind, like 2013, I saw Bitcoin evolving probably more like Ethereum is today as sort of as a platform where you build applications. And I assumed that that was the way the developers would take it. Mm-hmm. And they didn't take it that way. And that's fine. And I, I'm still a fan of Bitcoin. But for me, like as somebody who has is excited about kind of applications and computing platforms, which I talk in, about in the book a lot. I really like programmable platforms because they. I see programmable platforms like a computer, a mobile phone, a, a, a programmable blockchain. In many ways, it's like a canvas that innovators can come and just sort of take that canvas and paint something on it. Like it's a creative medium. I see software development as a creative medium. I, I you know, v- virtual reality, like I had invested in Oculus back in 2013. For me, it was less, the exciting thing was less the headset. I mean, the headsets, you need the headset, but it's more like what will creative people do with this new headset like that that's always the part that excites me so for me the evolution was sort of bitcoin but i saw it a little bit differently than i guess the rest a lot of other bitcoiners did and then when ethereum came out for me that you know was a big moment and then you know and have continued to stay very involved in the ethereum world and then you know but there are also now of course alternatives to ethereum which sort of share the vision but maybe take a different technical approach and then you know and then there were a lot of the early DeFi things were really interesting i think Mm -hmm. I think to me, things like Uniswap and Compound, people see them as the product side. There's sort of mm-hmm. two ways to look at those products. Like one is the product itself. Like, you know, you can use Uniswap to do swapping and Compound is a lending protocol. Then there's the fact that these are community controlled DAOs, right? That they are successful DAOs. Like the, their internet service is controlled by communities, controlled and owned by communities, right? So there's that other side to a kind of the back end side of it, which is also very interesting. That was very inspiring to me. I, NFTs, I think, have always been very interesting. NFTs, I think, are very misunderstood. You yeah. know, people associate them with avatars and things. It's a very general t- purpose technology. An NFT can represent identifier on social media. It can be mm-hmm. a digital collectible for the musician can sell to their fans. It can be an avatar. It could represent a real world asset. And so this idea that you could have sort of encapsulate digital ownership and use it as a new computing primitive to build new services to me, it was a very exciting idea. It still is a very exciting idea. I think we're very, you know, the NFT standard with ERC-721 was finalized in 2020. Like we're four, mm-hmm. people forget sometimes we're four years into it. Uh, it's very, very early. And we see a lot of really creative things being done with it. So for me, it's been this sort of steady evolution of like, wow, that's cool. Like that's, you know, every year or two, some really interesting new thing happens. And and for me, it kind of just gets the gears spinning of like, what could, what, what are the interesting things people could do with these, with these new tools? Yeah, for sure. I think that kind of... Sorry, that was not rapid. I apologize. (laughs) No, that's okay. (laughs) We are moving out of the rapid fire section. I think I failed the rapid (laughs) part, and I apologize. We will call that the fire section (laughs) for this episode. Looking at your book, it's sectioned into five sections, and the last section is what's next. And there's a lot to be said there, and you guys could go read the book. There is a lot said there. But I'm curious, especially as someone who works in venture capital watching the crypto space... I can imagine you're being asked 24-7, what is your focus here? And you're about to be asked it in like a half a second. But if you had to be, or if you had to pick one sector to bet big on, which would it be? Like, which one do you really feel like this is it? Like, I'll say for me, I really do see a lot of promise in blockchain gaming. 
And if NFTs weren't getting such a negative connotation, I could see that there too. But then there's also like the boring, less sexy like tech that will also succeed yeah. in my eyes. But I'm curious, what do I, you think it is? I think I think gaming is very interesting. And I think gaming, if I could expand on that, mm-hmm. I, I believe that kind of the line between gaming and and non-gaming will continue to blur over time, that, that just sort of more of the internet will become kind of existing in virtual worlds that, you know, it could be a game, but you could meet a future spouse in that game or get a job in that game. And mm. the world's yeah. become persistent and the world's interoperate and this the world becomes more, you know, like, I guess, like you think about things like the metaverse, it could be just like a thing, the metaverse, or it could be this gradual process mm-hmm. that just the internet becomes more immersive, which I think that's more likely. And I think the lines between play and work and, and such will, will blur. And so I, I would agree with you with that caveat that I think it's like games, but then we kind of dismiss games as toys. And in fact, I think games can be can expand into much more. And I think that is a very powerful area. I also am very interested in throughout my career, I have been in new business models for creative people. So one idea I talk about in the book is called collaborative storytelling. And this is an idea that a group of Internet users could get together and and collectively create the next Star Wars or Harry Potter, create a new narrative universe, and then get rewarded in proportion to their contributions with tokens. In the same way that Wikipedia is sort of a way for people to collaborate and create an encyclopedia, people could collaborate and create narrative universes. And Mm -hmm. I I think that's just a really interesting idea. And it's timely because I think in a world of generative AI, a lot of prior business models that creative people use, like you know, creating art and selling it will have pressure on it, right? Because you'll be able to just get that for much cheaper from a machine. And that, so it's a very important time, I think, to think about new creative business models. I, I think creative people will continue to, should should continue to get paid and have solid sources of income, but they may come through new through new systems, many of which I think could be developed around blockchains. And that's a, that's, that's a recurring theme throughout the book. And I have, I think what you allude to is at the end of the book, the last part, I have seven kind of deep dives into areas. Mm-hmm. And a few of those are around kind of media, new models for media folks. Yeah, I guess in investments aside, looking at the general public, which sectors do you think will bring on the most mainstream adoption? Is it one of these two areas that we just talked about? Or is it something that like, isn't going to be maybe your best investment, but it's like just some random... crypto sector i don't even know it's a good question um yeah you know i think we we now know that for example messaging and social networking and gaming are just really Mm -hmm. really really mainstream popular activities so it's hard to believe that something like blockchains could have you know broad impact without impacting those areas yeah it's just human nature humans want to talk to humans humans want to play games humans want to message you know so I think those just have to be kind of some some part of the focus. You know, finance is obviously a very important area. I think the people that are enthusiastic about finance is a much smaller set of people than people that are enthusiastic about social networking and gaming. So, like, yeah. so it's important. Like, look, I'm, it's important. So there's sort of things that are popular broadly, and then there's things that maybe finance isn't, most people aren't actually interested in day to day, but it matters because like the fees exactly. you get charged, the, you know, the lending rates you get charged, the remittance mm-hmm. rates you get charged matters. So I think there's some things that are kind of broad and, sh- and maybe shallower and some things that are kind of narrower and deeper. It's hard to pick favorites, but uh, they have different characteristics. My last question for you, Chris, is if you can leave us with a piece of advice or something that you've carried with you throughout your career in crypto. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I assume folks listening to this are maybe somewhat either potentially crypto curious or tech curious. I, I think that, I mean, I, like I've 
worked on the internet my whole career, I found it to be an incredibly rewarding area to work in. I, I find it's always intellectually interesting. I, I, you know, what I hope is that, you know, people will keep an open mind that they would, if I were giving advice, let's say to somebody early in their career, I would, I would advise them to explore different areas. I think it's important to, I, I wrote a blog post years ago called Climbing the Wrong Hill, which is about this idea that people kind of get stuck in local, like you, maybe you start off as a consultant and you kind of get stuck there and you're sort of focus on getting promoted. But when in fact, a lot of times early in your career, it's good to try different things. And I, and I think it's good to embrace the future. I, I think that, you know, I, I think blockchains, crypto, I think the stuff happening in AI, I think VR, I think self-driving cars, like a lot of these things may sound jargony today. I remember when metaverse and social networking and mobile was jargony, like there would be articles that were like, oh, gosh, those tech people <laughs> talking about that stuff again. It, but the reality is this, it will matter and it will become a thing. And so my I guess my advice. And one thing I'm glad that I did and I would advise others to do is, you know, you don't have to fall in love with it all, but I would take it seriously. I would explore it and find what you're passionate about. But that ultimately, like, there will be new things. The internet will change. There will be brand new kind of mega trends. And probably the most important thing one can do career-wise is to get involved in one of those things and to be optimistic about it. Yeah. And embrace the future, like you said. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Chris. And again, his book is called Read, Write, Own. It's out now. So go ahead and check it out for yourself. Thank, thank you so much, Jackie. We'll be back every week with the top news on the crypto ecosystem. Catch us on Tuesdays for interviews with experts in the Web3 space. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform, and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and the stories we talked about can be found in our show notes. And be sure to follow us at Chain underscore Reaction on Twitter. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Anita Ramaswamy, along with my co-hosts, Lucas Matney and Jackie Melanick. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni, and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.